0: Trinity Church, it is great being with you today. I wanted to thank Todd for letting me come down and be with you. Todd and I are really good friends and have been with him a long time, and he is a, just a wonderful man of God, a good husband and father, a devoted pastor, and I just want to hope I know he loves you and he is blessed to be with you, and I hope you can appreciate how much he is a gift to this church because we miss him where we're from but we know it's a blessing to have him here with you. So I'm excited for you guys to have that privilege. You guys like Todd? Okay. Just making sure. Just checking. I was thinking maybe I was in the wrong place. Uh, If you have a copy of your Trinity today or this week, you can get those out. That will help you follow along with us as well as in your home groups this week. Uh, Last week, Todd launched this new series called Real Mature. And he explained about that even though salvation Uh, is the free gift of God, following Jesus beyond your initial response of faith. uh, It requires some intentionality. It requires this effort on your part and giving yourself away to God so that he can take control of your life. Uh, that's That's almost the definition of becoming a Jesus follower, is that capacity and then your willingness to follow him in every area of who you are. And if you see, when you look at your relationship to God, when you place your faith and trust in Christ, there's this moment, we call it justification, but it's, it's where you're declared righteous and that old life now is gone and the new life has come. You are a new creation because of what the work of Jesus is in you. And as a part of that new creation, you have both a new capability to love and also capability to know God in ways that you never thought were possible. And that is indeed what we struggle with, is this positionality with the reality of what we're trying to become. Now in the Bible, this idea of being changed has these images that the scripture uses to help us understand it. In Acts 2, it talks about this idea that you were spiritually dead, and now you're alive, out of Ephesians 2. You've been given a heart of stone upon our birth, which separates us from God, but Ezekiel 36 says that you've been given now a heart of flesh, because Jesus Christ has changed you. Romans five talks about that we have been enemies with God and now we are a friend of God. First Thessalonians five talks about when we've been apart from God, we are walking in the darkness, but when Jesus Christ takes over our life, we walk in the light as he is in the light. And then Romans six conveys this idea that we were slaves, we are bound to sin, and now we are servants of righteousness. And that is the things that have happened when the Spirit of God takes over our life, that we've now been enabled to have a relationship to God. We have a a new capability to know and love God that we never had before. But what's interesting, and this is our now what moment this week, is that your capability to love, know, and follow God only becomes a reality through the powerful working of the Holy Spirit in your life. We're going to talk about that today, about what is the Holy Spirit's role in your life in maturing to become like Jesus Christ, and then in light of that, how do you live in that experience so it does become real and a part of who you are? If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to the Gospel of John. That's the fourth book in the New Testament of your Bibles, and uh, we're going to be in chapter 14. And as you're turning there, I just want to tell you a quick story That really was difficult because when I was thinking about becoming a dad, it was really difficult for me. I grew up as the youngest of three boys in a family, and so I grew up with no younger siblings and no girls in our house. And I just grew up doing the guy life. It was awesome. I love being a guy, and it's wonderful. And everything's going great. And I get married. It's awesome. And then in 1993 my wife, Wendy, and I found out that we were going to be expecting a baby. And that was awesome news, but then it started to really mess with me because I was relatively clueless what was going to happen because I knew that this this new child was going to change things in our home, but I I really didn't know how. In fact, I remember kind people saying, Kurt, that little baby's going to change you. And I remember thinking, I'd nod my head, oh, yeah, sure, sure. But you know what I realized? They never told me how that person was going to change me. It was not very helpful. I know things are going to be different, but give me some clues. What's going to be different? What's going to change? How am I going to change? I was ignorant. I had no idea how to be a good dad. So I did back then what every kind of good dad did, and I got this book called What to Expect While You're Expecting. Anyone read that? You should burn that thing. That thing totally messed me. That thing totally messed with me because I'm reading through that stuff and I'm thinking to myself, every other dad probably knows what it all means, but this was like really hard. I don't understand all this stuff. And I'm reading this thing, I just, I, it was overwhelming. And so I started to be ignorant. Now I'm doubting I could be a good dad. And then on top of that, I had these irrational fears come in my life where it's like, I, I oh my goodness. And they were rooted in well-meaning people telling me horror stories. Oh, I remember Jimmy. Yeah, he swallowed a quarter when he was two. He nearly died. Well, I mean, I'm not going through my house being sure there's nothing on the carpets. You know, I'm terrified of this. Oh, yeah, Sally, we tripped going down the stairs. You can see she's still special. But no, seriously, she's fine. No, I'm terrified. I'm like, what in the world are we going to do? And so I'm totally out of sorts. I'm nervous as all get out. And I remember my wife, when the baby's born, and she, you know, I get a hand of the baby, and I'm like, you know, I don't know, so I take the baby, and I'm like, you know, kind of like this. I kind of hold the baby like Simba. You know, because you because you don't know what you're doing with it, and so I'm holding the baby there, and then and then I'm you know eventually they, they eat you know, the baby eats, and you're supposed to burp it. I'm like, barely touching her back, and my wife, no, give it to her. She needs to burp it out. I'm, like, I'm going to hurt her, baby. I didn't know what I was doing. Now I'm terrified too, because am I going to be too strict or going to be too lenient? You know, I didn't want to mess up with her, and ultimately I didn't want her to mess up on me. You'll get that on the way home. That's fine. Because I was, I was just, I'm selfish. And I look back on that experience as a dad-to-be, and I laugh at myself because I look at what my daughter, and eventually I had a total of three daughters and a son, so I have a very wonderful life. But my kids are brought such depth to my life. I love my life because the kids have what they brought to me as a dad. But to be fair, excuse me, to be fair the misconceptions and the misunderstandings and the misgivings I had as a, a young-to-be dad was really something that limited what I wanted to have with the relationship with my daughter. And I share that today because that's how many people in the world today and no doubt in this room think about the Holy Spirit. You know that the Holy Spirit is supposed to be part of your life. There's this new relationship that you're supposed to have. But you really don't know what to do with it and it's kind of awkward because you're not sure how to relate to the Holy Spirit. And then for some of you you, you, you really want to have that relationship, but you kind of doubt it could happen because it seems so weird. I mean, Jesus is a person with a face and a name and a body, and then the Bible says, I want you to get to know the Holy Spirit. And you're like, this is really unusual. I don't know how to even relate to this Holy Spirit. And still others, if we're honest to ourselves, are terrified that we'll become something we don't want to be. And sometimes maybe if you've gone to different places or you watch certain shows and you see people that are saying they're with the Holy Spirit, and things are kind of weird, and you're not sure even what's normal. And so you're like, "I don't know what to do with this. I get Jesus, I understand him. But Holy Spirit, you are a little confusing to me, and so I'm going to stick you on the edge of my life, and I'm just going to make you there. You're fine, but I'm not going to focus on you because I don't know what to do with you. It's no wonder Oswald Chambers, who's a Christian author, he said this, The Spirit is the first power we practically experience, but the last power we come to understand. If you have given your life to Christ, that is a very true statement. When you give yourself to Christ, the Spirit of God becomes the very first person you know because he's the one that transforms you. Titus 3 talks about this regenerating work where that old life is gone and the new life has come. The power of the Spirit makes you into a new person but so often through the rest of our life, our understanding of the Holy Spirit never catches up to that first experience. My hope today is that I can help you get rid of some of those concerns or fears or ignorance or doubts that you might have about the Holy Spirit. And in our conversation, at least begin you down another step of relating to this third member of the Godhead and embracing what he wants to do in your life John chapter 14 talks about what the role of the Holy Spirit is in your life as a believer. What is he trying to do? What is his goal for your life and for my life? Start reading. I'm gonna start reading verse 15 and you can follow along as this is God's holy word. If you love me, Jesus says here, keep my commands and I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. In this passage, Jesus is about ready to go to the cross to die for our sins. And he's telling his disciples, hey, I am going to be going away from you. But I'm going to send another advocate who's going to come in my stead. And that Greek word there for another is interesting. It's it's not another of a different kind. It's this word meaning another of the same kind. So Jesus says, I'm going to send someone like me to come and be with you. And that kind of makes sense. If you remember back earlier in the gospel, Jesus talks to disciples and he says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Later he says, I and the Father are one. See, he was saying, when you see the Father, you see me, and when you see me, you see the Father, because both of us are God. We are three different persons, but one God. So it's not surprising that he would say the Holy Spirit's going to come as this new advocate, because the Holy Spirit is God. In fact, Acts 16 talks and says the Holy Spirit is, is called there the Spirit of Jesus. And so we have this beautiful imagery that this, this advocate that is coming will come in the same way that Jesus came and helped his disciples. So he is going to come alongside of these disciples and alongside of us. And there's a twofold role that he has in this passage. He's going to be our advocate, and then it says. He has come to help you. And I put it on the screen as he's here to aid you because I believe the idea of help has kind of got baggage in our culture. We, um, we want God to help us do lots of things, but I'm not sure all that help is aimed in the right direction. Let me explain. Recently, a sociologist named Christian Smith was overseeing a six-year study looking at the religious mindsets of college students, specifically at North Carolina, the Tar Heels, the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. And after all of his research, he came to the conclusion, and I'm quoting now, that the dominant religious perspective among U.S. teens was what he called a moralistic, therapeutic deism. A moralistic, therapeutic deism. Now, that sounds fancy perhaps, but it simply means that regardless of what religious community someone comes from as these teenagers, or the differences in their belief systems or creeds, most teenagers share a commonly held view of religion that is about general morality and personal benefits. In other words, I need to do good, and if I do good, God will do good back to me. That was the viewpoint of these young students, and I'm now quoting his conclusions this. He says, most American teenagers see God as a combination of a divine butler and a cosmic therapist. He is the go-to guy when things get tough, but they prefer not to have him too involved in their personal affairs, especially when it comes to dictating how they should leave, uh, how they should live. Excuse me, end of quote. Divine butler, cosmic therapist. Now, when you look at the world around you, maybe that's your perspective of the American teenager as well. My personal belief is that is a perspective of Americans, adults, and students. We see God is here to help us accomplish what we want to do. But as I put in your notes, the Holy Spirit is meant to come into your life to make you who he wants you to be. He wants to help you become who he wants you to be. He doesn't exist to meet your needs. And when the Holy Spirit comes in your life, he is not like a genie who grants you wishes, but he is a God who wisely instills a plan to make you more of what you've intended to be. Now, what does, it, what does that aid look like? What does his help look like? Then I want to give you some pretty specific examples. When the Holy Spirit comes into your life, his job is to teach you how to live. He is here to encourage you, how to keep walking in the right direction with him. It's to empower you how to change your life and also how you can impact your relational world. He is leading you in the direction you should go and he'll transform you to become like Jesus Christ. That is the help he is offering. now if you're like me I have a separate column right next to that one and in my column there's something called a Maserati because I would love to get God's help get me a Maserati that'd be a sweet ride and the other one little thing I have in mind is I want to eat food that doesn't make me fat but tastes great I just think that would be sweet and so I have all these funny little things that I want God to help me with and if you could do this guy that'd be great and I don't really want to have any health problems God, that's my list, and, and God says to me, Kurt, and he says to you, here's the list I have for you. I want to help you teach. I'm going to teach you. I'm going to encourage. I'm going to empower. I'm going to lead. I'm going to transform you, not so that you can become who you want to be, but that in following me, I will have you become just like Jesus Christ. Man, that's so good, but it's not often what we want, but that's what he's here to do to aid us in our spiritual journey. John 14 also says that he is here to, and it says here in the text, be with you forever. And I've just called that he's here to help abide with us. That is the idea that uh, Todd was talking about last week about the, the, the vine and the branches, that we abide in Christ. Functionally, people today, I abide in Christ through the Holy Spirit because he lives in me. That's the abiding that I can enjoy in my life. See, 2,000 years ago, Jesus walked the earth and he led his disciples from an external relationship. They'd be around the Sea of Galilee and they're sleeping on the dirt, hanging out, camping all the time. Because remember, Jesus didn't have a home. He's hanging out there and they get up and they get up and they start walking along the road and they have conversations. And Jesus is leading and teaching and guiding and encouraging and empowering the disciples every step of the way. We know there are thousands of disciples, by the way, that were following him, not just the 12. It, it wasn't feeding of the 12. It was a feeding of 5,000. Lots of people came along to hear his stories. So he's walking along, and they're talking, and they're on the boats, and they're having conversations. And so Jesus, from an external point of view, is shaping the hearts of the people. And then he tells his disciples, I'm going to send another advocate who's going to come in the same kind of way as me, but rather than being external, he is going to be internal. John 14 talks about the one that, was going to, that is with you will become in you. And so the Holy Spirit has been promised, and when he comes inside of us, Jesus is, is promising a partnership that is even stronger than an external one. Now we have an internal partnership. God was with them, but now God is going to be in them, transforming them and finishing the work that Jesus started. And Jesus has started to work in you if you know him, and the Holy Spirit's job is to help finish it for you. So what does it mean to have him with us, to be with us, to abide with us? Here's a list of those traits. He comes to indwell us. By the way, that's a one-time activity when you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. He abides in you. But then it says he seals. Seals is a framework of like a stamp. We have a God stamp on your heart that says you belong to him. He comforts you. He encourages you through the struggles. He convicts you of your sin. He promises to be there in your soul for that and he loves you. That is what the Holy Spirit is trying to do in your life. To come alongside and say, I want to aid you through teaching and encouraging and empowering and and leading you And I want to do the same and I want to make you like Christ through my presence where I seal and I dwell and I comfort and I convict and I love you. And when you allow me to aid you and abide with you, your entire life will be different. Everything will change. And that capacity to do things for God becomes a reality. 2 Corinthians 3.18, I think, is a beautiful verse that explains this reality. We all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed, it's a process, into his image with ever-increasing glory, it continues to grow, which comes from the Lord, who is what? Who's the Spirit. This transformation takes place over time, and God's Spirit takes on your life, and it says, I'm going to start work, he says, on you. Just like Jesus was working, I'm now going to work. And that is what he wants, to aid and to abide so that you could become like Jesus Christ. Now, the rest of our time, I want to walk through how you actually can experience that. Because that's what the Spirit of God wants to do, and he longs to do that in your life, but how do you make this a reality? How do you experience that help and get his support and his presence in your life? And I think Ephesians 5 is a place we'll land a little bit of our time. Ephesians 5.18 says, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. The short answer of how you have that aid and abiding relationship to the Spirit is that you become filled with the Spirit. Not more self-effort, not more self-help, but relinquishing yourself to the Spirit's leadership in your life. Paul's command here is unique. It's, it's kind of unique because it's a command, something I'm compelled to do, but it's written in the passive form because it's something only the Holy Spirit can accomplish to you and for you. If you were here last week, Todd mentioned that, that the best Greek way of framing that is to be being filled with the Spirit, which is horrific English grammar, by the way. But it's wonderful theology to be being filled. And in that verse, you look at it, he, can, he contrasts these two ideas in this imagery. He says, instead of being drunk, be filled with God's spirit. Have you ever seen someone who is intoxicated? Anyone see someone like that who's drunk? Okay, well, you might need to get out more because they're out of time. <laughs> no, I've seen people like that, and it's funny, when you see someone who is under the influence of alcohol, it means that something other than themselves is controlling them, Right? And you see it in how they live. You see it the way they talk. Their talk reveals whether they're under that control. You see it when they walk. You see, maybe you see them on the side of the road and they're trying to walk the line. And you can see something else has taken over their life. And it controls the way they think. Alcohol, when someone drinks to excess, they have surrendered their life to the influence of that alcohol. It now is running what they're doing. And because they've given a conscious decision to let it take over. And Paul says, in a similar way, when you have the Spirit of God in your life, you need to surrender yourself to the Spirit and let Him take over your life so much and to have Him become the influence in your life so much that the way you talk, people notice that's the Holy Spirit talking through you. The way you walk, man, that's what God would want me to do. The way you think, that's the way God must think. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit is that He takes over your life And he influences all the things about you so everyone around you can see that reality become true. Be being filled. Now, that happens only when you have actively surrendered your life to God. You have to actively surrender your life to Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit will not sanctify you apart from your submission to him and his ways. He partners with you. Six months ago, uh, I was laying on a gurney preparing to have surgery. And this was really weird because I'd never been in a hospital before in my life. So I'm in my early 50s and never been in a hospital. Now I'm laying on a gurney waiting to go in for surgery. And I'll let you know that that experience with me laying on the gurney in the pre-op room didn't happen That moment, It happened months before where I met with a doctor, and the doctor said to me, Kurt, you have a significant issue that we're going to need to get to surgery really fast with. And I asked questions. I said, are you sure, doc? Are you sure there isn't another way to deal with it? And he says, no, this is a big deal. It's life-threatening. You've got to get surgery for this. So I went home, and I remember talking to my wife and praying about that, saying, you know, Lord, would you please guide our conversation? Because I don't know... I don't want to do this, but this is something, if, if we need to, God, would you guide me in this? And so we had a great sense that we needed to move ahead with the surgery. So then what I had to do is the day of the surgery, I had to drive down the hill from up in the desert, and I had to go into the, the main area there, and I had to check in. And I had a little card, and I scanned the little card, and they said, Hey, Mr. Thielen, welcome. And I said, Yeah, it's not, be, not good to be here. <laughs> but I'm here. And then I have to sign a waiver saying if they have any mistakes, it's not their fault, which is still a little weird to me. But anyway... Sign the waiver, and I release that, and I go in, and then I'm laying on this gurney, and they push me and roll me into this room. And strangely enough, you know what else I had to do? I had to stay on the gurney. If you've ever had surgery, you know you want to get off the gurney and leave. And I'm there, and I'm like, Lord, give me peace to be okay. No, I wanted to get off, but I had to stay in the gurney. And then the doctor came in before the surgery happened and says, Hello, Mr. Thielen, good to see you. And, uh, you know, were you ready? And so, of course, what I did is really simple. I said, you know, I, I kind of want to negotiate some things with you. I had a couple different things for the surgery I was thinking about. I know you've got an idea what you're trying to do, but I got some things. I was, I was looking at some things. I didn't do that. You know, Doc, I was watching YouTube the other day, and that first incision, you're thinking about doing it here, and I'm thinking, no, I think there's a better way to go about that. It's crazy, isn't it? What I did is I said to the doctor, I trust you. And I need you to do this because I've got to get better. And he waved goodbye to me. And he says, I'll see you in a while. That was really hard for me. But I'll let you know, submitting myself to that doctor and his surgical team Many times it's easier than it is for me to submit to the Holy Spirit in my life. And it's sad to say that because the Spirit of God knows me better than anyone else. I met this doctor eight, nine months ago. And yet in that moment, I surrendered my body to him like somehow he was the expert. And yet with God, who is the expert of the universe, somehow I struggle to say, God, I give you my life. You see, the Spirit of God is wanting to do surgery on you and me. He wants to dig into your life and say, I want to help you become better. And we lay on the gurney, as it were, before the Spirit of God, and he's wanting to attack the areas in your life that are defeating you, that are causing you to be spiritually unhealthy, that are breaking up your relationships. And many times you and I hop off the gurney and run out the door because we don't want the Spirit of God working that closely on us. And we have a disease that the Spirit maybe wants to take care of, and we're worried about putting Band-Aids on our arms, thinking that's going to be adequate. And God's saying, would you just surrender? Give yourself up to me. As the great physician, I want to come into your life and bring health back to who you are. That is what he longs for us to do. How do you do that practically? How do you stay on the gurney? How do you stay on that? How do you sit there and say, God, I'm gonna stay here until you do the work on me? I'm gonna give you three things. These aren't in your notes. These are bonus. You can talk to me later. Thanks, you're welcome. Um, First, you gotta get real. You have to get real about your honest appraisal of who you are. If you wanna surrender, you have to say, God, I'm gonna be honest. This is what I've got going on. This is my issue. I admit it. You know, as humans, we like to compare ourselves against others. I have never compared myself to Mother Teresa or Billy Graham. Who do you compare yourself with? Other people. Like I maybe do Billy Joel or Billy Crystal or Billy Idol. I might compare myself to any other Billys, but I don't go to the top. I take the people that I know maybe don't look quite as good as me. And in doing so, I'm deceiving myself because I'm, look, I'm not that bad. I'm not Hitler. You know, and you you do this weird comparison. And God's saying, no, be honest. Come clean with who you are because I have work to do on you. But you're never going to stay on this gurney unless you admit who you are. You have to get real. The second thing is you have to get specific. And I'm going to say something now that might take you the wrong way, but hear me out on it. I don't really like talking about surrendering everything to God. And I know we'd say, yeah, we got to surrender everything to God. But my view is, when I say that to God, I'm really going to be doing nothing. Because if I say I'm going to surrender everything, there's nothing specific I target. God, I give you everything. It really doesn't mean anything. So I think you have to get specific. You have to look at your life and say, God, what are the areas I need to target that are the things you need to have surgery to extract from me? Or you need to go in and repair that issue because I'm wrong. One of the things I try to do periodically is I put together things in my life, visual things in my life that remind me of where I need God to work on me. And their ways are just practical because I think that's where I have to get to remote control. This represents in my life what's in front of me on a screen. And I have to evaluate who's running this. Is this me running the remote control or is this the Holy Spirit? Because it's easy when you're doing this, letting it linger a little too long on a, sta- on a station. Or maybe you're getting enthralled with something that you know is eating you up and it's not getting you in a healthy place. For me, I want the Holy Spirit to run my remote control. Another thing I have to give away to the Holy Spirit and say, God, I need you to surrender this to you are my car keys. Um, When I drive my car under the power of the Holy Spirit is a gift from the Lord to the the people in the community. (laughs) When I drive my car under my own power, you better watch out, because I'll run you off the road Because I can be impatient behind the wheel. You see, I recognize that my driving at times is not spirit-led, and so when I get in the car, I have to talk to the Lord saying, God, I need you to help me drive today. I've been driving for a long, long time. But I haven't been driving a long, long time with the Holy Spirit being the one who speaks to my heart, making sure I behave like Jesus Christ would behind a wheel. You with me on that one? Girl Scout cookies. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with those at all. <laughs> now, to be honest, I will say, for my life, this does represent something. And this represents kind of a very subtle sin called gluttony. And uh, it's not just Girl Scout cookies for me, but it is, why am I eating? Is it solving a problem in me? Am I eating out of balance? Am I overdoing it? Am I a glutton? You see, I need the Holy Spirit and I to cooperate on the issues of my eating habits. It's his body. He gave it to me to use for his glory. And I recognize that time in my life, this is just me, this may not be you, but in my life, the things I eat sometimes get in the way. And the last thing I've pulled out, I actually bought this because I didn't have one, is about an hourglass to remind me That as much as I believe in my time, it isn't my time. It's God's time. And so when I'm doing whatever I'm doing in life, I want the Spirit of God to speak in. Is that how I want you to use your time, Kurt? Is that how I want you to invest your time for my kingdom purposes? Or are you doing things that are just because you want to do that? Those are the things in my bag. I don't know what's in your bag. I don't know the things that God has placed in your life that you recognize. I need to be specific, and these are the things for me. For some of you, it might be your phone. It might be your laptop because you're going to websites that you know are messing with your heart and mind that are aiming you not toward Christ but away from him. For some of it might be your Macy's receipt in your bag. Because you find shopping as the way you find meaning, and shopping has become a God to you. It might be your PS4 controller or your Xbox. It might not be the fact that even what you're doing is wrong, but you're spending so much time doing it that you're not walking with Christ. You have to be honest with yourself, you have to get real, you have to get specific. And the last thing here is you need to get some feedback. You need to find out how you're doing and get some evaluation. How can you tell you've surrendered your life to the Holy Spirit today? What does that look like to you? I'm going to give you three evidences that in my life that I go back and I study and I ask questions about. The first is that you have given control and you've relinquished that back to the Holy Spirit You see, you share a relationship with God and ultimately one person can lead your life at a time. And when you are filled with the Holy Spirit, God has a control of every part of who you are. God has your remote control. God has your steering wheel. God has your computer. God's got it all. How do you know that's happening is that you are obeying the Bible, God's word. That's how you surrender control is you see what God says and you say, I recognize that you're saying, God, and even though it's going to be hard, I am going to submit my decisions to your word that your Holy Spirit is putting into my heart. Now, what's interesting is that there's a chance that you could do that for a while And then you could regress and pull back the leadership from God. That you rip the Girl Scout cookies out of his hands. That you take back that controller or that mouse. And that's what the Bible talks about is our greatest challenge in this regard. 1 Thessalonians 5 talks about what is our difficulty and it is this. He says, don't quench the Spirit. You see, when I, you and I want to walk and follow and be filled with the Spirit of God, to be filled with the Spirit, the opposite is not to be empty of the Spirit, it is to quench the Spirit. Okay? When you give your life to Christ, He promises to indwell you permanently, so you're not going to have, like, no Spirit of God in you. The question is, is the Spirit of God in you doing what He promised to do, which is to aid and abide you, with you? So the Spirit of God is like a fire, the Bible says. His job is to come in and to burn out the things that are ruining your life. He is a consuming fire. He's trying to take away those sinful habits and those attitudes that are ruining your relationships. He's trying to get inside of you, and he's burning these things away. And the Bible, using this imagery of it quenching, it's like you're taking water and pouring the water onto what the Spirit of God is trying to do. He's fighting for you, and you're constantly at the same time putting water on him because you're uncomfortable because he's burning things away you want to keep. How can you tell you're quenching the spirit? I don't know. Let me give you examples of how I know I am quenching the spirit. And this is just mine again. My list might be different than yours. But I know I'm quenching the spirit when I rationalize my sin and act like it isn't as bad as I know God thinks it is. I know I'm quenching God's spirit when I blame others for things in my life that are really my fault. When I quench God's spirit, I find out that temptations win far more often in my life. My words become harsh more quickly. My patience wanes. I have a spiritual apathy toward God where he now seems distant from me. That's just me. That's the signs and trigger points to know I have got a hose in my hand and I'm spraying down God's work in my soul. And I don't know what your points are where you could look in your mirror and say, yeah, man, I I know that's what's going on. But you gotta look closely in the mirror and say, God, what are you trying to do in my heart? I don't wanna quench your work because you're trying to to make me become the person you want me to be. Control has been relinquished. Number two, your character is being reflected, and it's specifically the character of Jesus Christ. Most of the biblical examples of being full of the Spirit accompany the idea of an action. So when someone was full of the Spirit, they had courage, where before they had fear. They might be in a jail in Philippi at midnight having just been beaten up, but people like Paul and Silas are singing praises to God at midnight because something is different about them and this, this spirit of God, the character of Christ is being seen in their life. Here's a whole list of characteristics that come from the spirit. Their spirit will give hope and wisdom and revelation and strength and power and fellowship and discernment and love, joy, peace, patience. If you're full of the spirits, these are the characteristics that are going to come out of your life. How are you doing in that area? This is one of those areas, by the way, that it's very hard to judge on your own. And so what I'd encourage you to do, and I really mean this, is to ask someone in your life, a close friend, maybe it's a spouse, a family member, to say, hey, would you do, so, do me a favor? I am trying to be understanding to sure that the Spirit of God is working in me. Could you look at my life and could you evaluate, is this who I am becoming? Is this the kind of character that you see in my life? Because I don't want to be self-deceived anymore. And if you have, well, let's say maybe someone's going to ask you to do that for them. I want to encourage you to do two things. If you're asked to do that for a family member or a friend, be honest. Don't downplay. That's not going to help them. And be kind, because they're opening themselves up to you in a way that you maybe are feeling this is really hard. But they're asking, "Is this really me?" I've done this before in my own life, and it's so hard because I see myself one way, and I talk, and hey, is this who I am? And 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 I would encourage you, praise praise your family or friend for the amazing things you see in them, but don't hold back and say, you know, I see you being impatient. And I think that's something God wants to do some surgery on in your life. Your control is relinquished to God. The character of Christ is fleshed out in your life. And then the final characteristic you can look for in an evidence is that your confidence is restored. This is a hard one because it's difficult to quantify what is internal. So you can look at the fruit in someone else's life, the character, and you can say, I can see it or I don't, but here's this one that's kind of inside of me, inside of you, it's in our soul. But I'm talking about here a confidence that you understand that there is a, an assuredness that you belong to God and that he belongs to you. Romans 8, 16, it says this, the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. God's Spirit testifies that we belong to Him, that we're family, that we're good now. And the goal is that there is this confidence that we're walking in such a way with God that our life is under His hand and He's got control of all the things in our life, and the character of Christ is fleshed out in us. And we just, we're just good. Relationally, we know whether we're pleasing or displeasing God, and whether there's this synergy in a relationship. And if you have family or friends, and maybe it's a spouse, and you go through life with them, it's pretty easy, at least in my experience, to know whether I'm in the doghouse or the penthouse. Right? I've been married to my wife for 30 years. One glance gives me that story. That glance is either, boy, you're getting it done, this is awesome, or dude, run for the door. I can tell just by a glance because I know my wife so well. I know what she loves. I know what her habits are. I know the things that I do that irritate her. I want to do those. So my wife and I totally understand each other. If I'm driving down the road and I go by a garage sale and don't stop, whoo, it's going to be a long day. <laughs> Cuz my wife stops at garage sales. We made a deal years ago. That little sign pops up and I get terrified because a garage sale, I can just do a drive by and it's nothing there. My wife, that turns into a three-hour experience. But I know what she loves. I know what it's going to take. Now I look at my life with God and your life with the Holy Spirit. He wants to have that kind of relationship with you so that you know immediately, man, this is pleasing the Lord and I am such a sweet spot. Or maybe, man, God, I let you down. I know it. You know, you don't even have to tell me because I sense your disappointment. You see, that's the loving relationship we're meant to have with the Holy Spirit, that he is so close to us that we feel that. There's a confidence that, God, I'm with you on this. Have you ever sung songs to God and in that moment, you felt like he was right next to you? Man, six months ago when I'm laying on the gurney inside that hospital, God was as close to me as he's ever been. And his presence was in that moment so powerful. And I'm laying there ready to be cut open. But man, the peace of the Holy Spirit filled my life. Have you ever seen a sunset? And you're watching the sunset and in the midst of that you're just so assured that God is in charge of that tough area in your life. Like, God, I don't want to go on, and you look, and God's grandeur has just showed up into your soul, and you're like, God, I know you've got this. You see, that is that intimacy that we're supposed to have with the Holy Spirit. He wants us to have those encounters, and I, and I believe in my own life, the encounters don't happen all the time for two reasons. One is I'm still in process. I have so much work to be done to grow to be like Christ. I get that, and that's why. But I think he offers those moments to us so that we get a taste of what could be. What could life be like if the Holy Spirit ran every part of who I am? And I have those moments where God is so real and my confidence is bolstered because I know God and I are right. That is what he longs for us, folks to be filled with the Spirit of God, so that everything changes. I love this quote by Wayne Grudem. He says this, being filled with the Spirit of means to be filled with the immediate presence of God to the extent that you are feeling what God feels himself, desiring what God desires, doing what God wants, speaking by God's power, praying and ministering in God's strength and knowing with the knowledge that God himself gives. That is my prayer for you as a people that the people of Trinity Church would become so filled with God's Spirit that everything about you, every part of who you are is transformed, both for your good and for the glory of God. And when those things happen, you know what's going to happen is that the people in your relational world are going to see that the Holy Spirit is running your life. You are under his influence. And they're going to look at you going, you just are doing things different than other people. What's going on with you? And you say, you know what? I finally surrendered my life to Jesus Christ and he's leading every area. He's got my laptop now. And that's why I'm not walking with my head down in shame. The Holy Spirit has my wallet And I'm now realizing there's more to this life than just the money and the job that I have. Your relational world is gonna see things in you when the Spirit of God fills your life that makes everything different. And that will change this church forever. The now what statement, your capability to know and love God and follow Him only becomes a reality through the powerful working of the Holy Spirit in you. Now what are you going to do with that? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this day, the opportunity we have to be here and to come to grips with at times our misgivings and misinformation and misconceptions about you, Holy Spirit. I pray, God, that as we leave this room and go into our week, that You, Holy Spirit, would not be kept on the outside of our life, but that you would be someone changing every part of who we are because we're surrendering the specifics to you. I pray that we would even in this day go home and make a decision to say, God, what are the things you need to cut out of my life? What are the things you need to fix? I want to stay, God, on that gurney so you can do the work that's going to heal me and make me better. Father God, we cannot do that on our own willpower, so we rely even on your spirit, to give us that strength. We pray, God, that as you work in us, you might actually use us as well to show the beauty, love, and forgiving power of Jesus Christ to those who watch our lives. We need you every hour. And I pray you'd make us different this week because we surrendered to you. I ask this all in the great name of Jesus Christ. Amen.